I'm very uh, pleased and excited about today's forum, which pursues a topic which the forum has been uh, concerned with for a number of seasons, uh, and a topic that continues to be of critical importance to the to the uh, welfare, I think, to the intellectual welfare of the country, the state of local news, and, uh, and, and what's happening more broadly to journalism because of the profound impact of digital technologies. Our, our, uh, my task is a simple one. It's to introduce your moderator who, who will carry the burden of the forum on his broad shoulders and damaged elbow. Uh, Dan Kennedy is an assistant professor of journalism at Northeastern University and the sole owner and proprietor of the Media Nation blog, which I'm finding more and more is one of my favorite destinations for intelligent commentary about journalism and politics. He is now completing a book about online local news sites with a focus on the New Haven Independent, a nonprofit project. The book is tentatively titled The Wired City, and will be published by the University of Massachusetts Press. Dan Kennedy. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming, everybody. Uh, it, it's great to see this audience here. And um, we have a large hall, as you can see. So don't be shy about moving closer to the front if, uh, if you feel like you'd uh, like to come down and get a better look, especially with some of the websites we're displaying on the screen. Um, <clears throat> earlier this year, the FCC issued a report uh, titled The Information Needs of Communities the changing media landscape in a broadband age. And I understand that the, uh, the highlights of the report were distributed to you on, on your way in. And it's, uh, it's well worth taking a look at, even though I, I would take issue with some of it, and I think that some of our speakers might take issue with some of it as well. But nevertheless, there are some stark statistics in there that, uh, that you really can't take issue with. Um, 13,400 newspaper jobs have been lost over the last four years, uh, which is really a significant uh, percentage of the reporting base that we had for doing uh, public interest journalism in cities and towns across the country. Um, the newspaper business traditionally has been supported by advertising, as we know. And online advertising on newspaper websites nationally grew by $716 million between 2005 and 2009. So uh, happy days are here again. Not quite. <clears throat> that figure was more than offset by the loss of $22.6 billion in print advertising. Uh, one of the reasons that we are starting to see newspapers trying to charge for online access, uh, and I think we'll probably hear a little bit about that this evening, is that um, online advertising has really amounted to pennies compared to the print dollars uh, that we saw at one time. And finally, uh, as, as, uh, as you heard, I do have a special interest in nonprofit news sites, and I do think it is a promising alternative in some cases. But $1.6 billion uh, was cut from editorial spending by news organizations per year uh, 
over a five-year period, while foundations have contributed an estimated $180 million to fund new online ventures over a five-year period. So again, the, the money that's going into uh, starting some of these nonprofit news sites is absolutely minuscule compared to the money that is being drained out of professional journalism. And yet, as I said, I do think the report is unnecessarily gloomy and that there is reason for optimism. Uh, it seems like an explosion of new ventures and experiments are upon us, uh, not just the New Haven Independent, but the Voice of San Diego, the Texas Tribune, Min Post, uh, small for-profit sites such as the Batavian and BaristaNet, which cover their local areas, and the list really goes on and on. Um, we are also seeing a lot of new local coverage uh, here in the Boston area as well, and uh, our all-star panelists will be speaking to that. Now, what I'm going to do is uh, uh, each of our panelists is going to speak for maybe five minutes or so, and I'm going to introduce them one at a time. So uh, what, the, the, what I am going to do is start with uh, David Dahl, who is the regional editor of the Boston Globe and is in charge of the Globe's Zone Suburban Editions uh, on Thursdays and Sundays, and also on Boston.com's Your Town Hyperlocal websites, which cover many of the towns around Boston and many of the neighborhoods in Boston. Um, it is kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition for David to be in because, as you probably know, the Boston Globe recently went to a paid website and also a free website. The zoned editions are part of the paid website, and the Your Town sites are part of the free website. So he's kind of is involved in both aspects of that. Um, also, for each speaker, I will have a disclosure. Disclosure number one. Uh, some of uh, our students at Northeastern University, including some of my students, uh, contribute to the Your Town sites, and uh, I have some involvement in coordinating with uh, Dave in terms of uh, getting those stories onto the Your Town site. So uh, I, I, I have a conflict with all three of our speakers, and that's my conflict of interest with Dave. So Dave, you're on. Uh, thank you. Um... It's great to be here. It's great to be here with, uh, with Dan and Kelly and Adam and to see everybody here to uh, talk about something that's a passion of mine and I think of everybody uh, who's up here on this panel, which is to deliver uh, local news and information uh, to our readers and to our user, users in greater Boston. Uh, the question as, as posed to me uh, at the outset here was, uh, is local news a casualty of the digital age? And I, from my standpoint, uh, the answer is uh, an emphatic no. Um, in fact, I think over the last few years, we've seen uh, a huge growth in uh, the number of websites uh, that are covering individual communities around Greater Boston. And so what I'm going to do, first and foremost, is just sort of take a quick little survey through a couple of these. Um, here in Cambridge, we have the Cambridge Day. Um, uh, in Medford, uh, inside Medford, um, uh, I just learned about one that I wasn't all that familiar with called Open Media. Um, 
And of course, uh, we have uh, Universal Hub. And, and in the radio uh, broadcast area, many uh, TV shows or TV uh, stations have started their own websites, as have the, both of the two uh, uh, NPR stations, uh, WBUR and WGBH, both have a much greater community presence, not just over the, uh, the airwaves, but they've started, they've opened up uh, websites uh, and are pretty aggressive in trying to cultivate a community following. Uh, and we've noticed that uh, at the Boston Globe and Boston.com, believe me. Um, from my standpoint, uh, I have more uh, street on the feet, or, or feet on the street than I did um, a few years ago. Uh, we have 50 Your Town websites in Greater Boston, uh, 17 in the city of Boston, 33 in the suburbs. Uh, staffing that are a, a system of town correspondents. There are around 10 or 11. Uh, young men and women, largely, who are, are writing stories for each one of those and, and acting as ambassadors in each one of those communities. Uh, in addition, the model for our sites is to link to local blogs uh, and to link to content from the Boston Globe and to encourage users to contribute as well. Um, so what this means uh, is uh, we are covering more stories uh, than we were a few years ago. In some cases, these sites have replaced print products that The Globe published. Uh, in uh, about two, two and a half years ago, we shut down a print uh, uh, section called City Weekly, which covered Cambridge, Somerville, Boston, and Brookline. And, uh, and now we have websites for each one of those communities. Uh, it, are we covering things? Uh, to the fullest extent that I would like? No. Uh, are we covering things more than we would if we were a few years ago? Yes. Um, so what kinds of stories are we doing? Um, uh, yesterday, we heard from uh, one of our uh, staffers uh, on driving home that the cops were uh, ticketing bicyclists uh, in Cambridge. Uh, there is a vibrant bicycling community in Greater Boston. Uh, so we. Uh, reported it out as we would under any, any circumstance. Uh, and we put the story on our Cambridge site. We also put it on boston.com. As you can see, it generated 56 comments. We also put it out on our Facebook page. It generated even more comments. This is a story that was very much read by, by folks in the greater, greater Boston area and beyond. Um, the, uh, we have other examples of the sorts of things um, in, uh, in Dorchester, uh, there is a city council race. Uh, you know, this is you know, meat and potatoes coverage that you would see in a lot, of, a lot of newspapers. But as structured as the Boston Globe is structured as it was, uh, this story, uh, this District 3 race, might get one story in the metro section. You know, we uh, uh, are able to expand upon that, um, you know, do a Q&A with the, with, the, uh, with the candidates. And we're also able to, you know, link to other organizations or other news organizations' coverage. When you click on that that link right there, we're sent to the Dorchester Reporter, which has another take on the on the race. Um, so uh, this has been largely a success. Uh, we can probably talk a little bit more about whether it's been a financial success. Um, 
Uh, I'm turning to you because I know you're making millions of dollars <laughs> off of this. Um, but uh, we believe that uh, this is essential to, to uh, our coverage in Greater Boston. Uh, we'll, we're constantly rethinking it, of course, but uh, we, it has made us fundamentally a better news organization and has connected us and our brand and our people to the community in ways that we were never connected before through all of the social media tools that we all know about, uh, through face-to-face -face contacts with people and through simply covering their communities more closely. Thank you very much, Dave. Our next speaker is a distinguished journalist uh, who was so distinguished, I am not gonna possibly be able to get to everything that she has done in her career, uh, but I certainly can mention a few highlights. Uh, Callie Crosley is a longtime television producer who is now the host of the Callie Crosley Show on WGBH Radio, uh, which is at 89.7 FM on weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., and she is a panelist on Beat the Press, which is a media review and criticism program on WGBH-TV Channel 2 on Fridays at 7 p.m. Uh, Callie was a producer on Eyes on the Prize, the, uh, the amazing civil rights documentary. Um, she is a former Neiman Fellow. She continues to work for the Neiman Foundation. Uh, she worked for many years for uh, 2020 on a, at uh, ABC News. Uh, I know she actually did the reporting on one of my favorite stories from 2020. Uh, she frequently appears on National Public Radio, on the PBS NewsHour, and on many other programs. Um, she has received uh, honorary degrees. Uh, she was also a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And uh, believe me, I could continue, but uh, I think you would probably rather hear from Callie. Uh, disclosure number two, uh, I'm also a panelist on Beat the Press, and Callie and I are colleagues and friends. So Callie Crosley. Thanks, Dan. Um, so I would like to know in this audience how many of you are regular local news viewers, readers, whatever. Okay, so this is a biased audience, good. <laughs> Just wanna know, uh, because when I asked that question in my other groups, which I started to do leading up to this uh, talk, uh, I, that's not the sort of response that I get. I get people saying, well, I kinda sorta maybe read it. Um, at night I might watch uh, local news, but you know, pretty much they reflect uh, something of the bias against local news that I think has happened over a period of time that's changing now, I will say, but I think, I think it's changing. Uh, a lot of people hold in their minds that it's just boring and bad. Uh, one person said to me, it's uh, animal abuse and salacious murders. And I'm just really not that interested. So I said, well, I think it's a little bit more than that, but okay. But I'm just saying that that local news has often um, gotten a bad rap. And so I think what's happened when local news has been put in this digital age, then people are finding their way to it uh, because of their interest in what's going on around them. And sadly, I also think, because some of the larger organizations stopped covering it in, at the level down here. They may cover a little bit up here, but down here, you don't hear about it or see about it maybe as much as you might have at one point. And so that's given an opportunity for a lot of folks. I know Adam will speak about that more um, uh, carefully a little bit after me. But I think that that 
is the reason why uh, some people are coming back to local news and finding their way back there, even though they may not know that that's uh, what has happened. So a little bit of context about myself. I mean, from the beginning, I was going to have to be a person that sought out local news in a different way. So I never expected mainstream media to be the answer for me. That's not what happened in my household. Uh, both my parents are black. I'm black. We knew our story not in there. So where are you going to go get? Where are you going to look for it? Uh, you're going to look for those local institutions, those people that really know the stories in, the, in your neighborhood, uh, to, to tell you that. Uh, here in Boston, I turn to some of those institutions. I have someone who's helping me. I don't know how, how, do, how this works. Should I say that? Oh, there you are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just going to pop up a few because I don't assume that people know anything about what may be out there or not. You let me know when you're ready. Okay. So one of the ones I might turn to is the Bay State Banner. Is that up? So this is a, a long time publication here in Boston. Uh, it's gone through many iterations. It still exists. It's now uh, edited by uh, a journalist who has worked at many institutions here in Boston, including the Globe, the Herald, um, and uh, Howard Manley. And so they cover the issues that are of concern to African-Americans in the community. Um, and they do it pretty straightforward. They also may pull in some national pieces that have some impact on what's going on locally. Uh, another publication I might turn to is El Planeta. Uh, El Planeta is going to come up here in Spanish, but you can also click on it and get it in English um, because they're covering the Latino population. Uh, for me, there's a big cross between African-American and Latino populations. I'm interested in what's going on there. And then, you know, to keep, you, you keep drilling down on this local, and we're going to talk about the difference between local and hyperlocal. You're going to get to sites like Black Bostonian. Now, this is a guy uh, similar to Adam, who's just like all about the African-American community. He's a little edgy. That's the term I'd use. <laughs> but be that as it may, um, he's really interested in politics, so you'll see a lot of pol political stuff. And I, I, nine times out of ten, see stuff there that I just would not see anyplace else. And he manages to get people to say some things on the record, possibly because they don't know, I think, the extent by which some of their uh, comments can be out into the world because uh, it's digital. So that's to put that on the table. Um, it's really important to me to have some other other places to get the whole story. And I was going to have to do that anyway, because I knew from the beginning. I don't think that's an assumption that a lot of people made. I think a lot of folks thought, I'm getting everything I need if they were into local news from their local big institution, whatever that may be. And it's become clear as people made their way out into the cyberspace that there were other opportunities to, to find out information they may not have had uh, access to before. So I talked to one friend and she said to me, you know, one of the things I like to do is follow, follow the Cambridge police site. And then I check it against what stories may be, maybe uh, what David has done in your town to see how that story came out. So maybe with the arrests of those bicyclists, she probably went back and read the police report of what happened. She said, that way I can get the original source and I can get this. I said, well, now you're kind of nerdy. I'm not sure everybody's doing that. But, but that's an opportunity. If you want to go that way, you can do that. And so I think that, in a way, is, uh, just speaks to the expansion of what happens uh, in the digital age with local news. 
Um, I wanted to talk about an experiment that I've, it's not now an experiment, it's really it's a real thing happening, but it started as an experiment by a friend of mine who does not live here. But this is what we have seen happening in terms of folks who are turning to the reporting of their communities. You know, we can argue about the definition of a reporter, and I have, believe me, on Beat the Press uh, a lot. And we may also have a conversation about what reporting looks like. And there are some things in that FCC report which suggest that reporting, as we may have defined it originally, is not happening now. That there's more information out there, there's more sites, there's more local sites, but are there gaps in what you may or may not be getting um, about your, what's going on locally, you know, at City Hall, at the State House, that kind of stuff. Where it's not happening, I can tell you, uh, is in McLean, Virginia where a friend of mine uh, in February 2009 said to me quite enthusiastically, uh, she would, had reduced her full-time job. She worked at the, interestingly enough, the American Society of Newspaper Editors, uh, was working in administration, had a long-time career as a journalist, including a stint at the Washington Post. She said, I really miss journalism, being on the ground. I want to get back out there. And I said, what are you going to do? She said, I'm going to do a website in McLean, uh, Virginia in my little community called the McLean Ear. Would you put up that first one for me? It's up? Great. Um, and I said, oh. And I said, what's driving you that? She said, McLean is so interesting. We got everybody there. We got Dick Cheney, and then we got the lady that bakes this great bread. I just love my little community, just my community. I said, is that going to sell? She said, nobody's covering it. She said, Washington Post, and I worked there. She said, at one time they did it, but nobody's covering it, and there's a lot going on here. She said, did you know that McLean is the, the single largest uh, neighborhood for CIA agents? No, I did not know that. I said to her, Bobby. She said, well, it is. <laughs> and I said, oh. And she said, so there's all kinds of interesting stuff here. I want to do it. So she was preparing to do that as she was uh, easing out of uh, ASNE work um, and was taking her time. She had hired a guy to build a website for her. She's building it, building it, building. And finally, she was pushed off into starting this web blog because something happened in the community and she thought, this is exactly the kind of story that's gonna not only resonate with people, but really uh, underscores why we need local attention at the neighborhood level. And it was a story about the library closing in McLean, Virginia. Now understand, as she's given me these, these stats, um, there are 80,000 people with master's degrees or some, some ridiculous number uh, in, in uh, McLean, Virginia and they make all kinds of money. It's very affluent. It's one of the most affluent communities in the United States. So the fact that they're gonna shut down the library in McLean doesn't even make sense. What they had done in other communities surrounding them is when they shut down the library, they would then open up a temporary one. But they were very stealthily just saying, we're closing it down, but no temporary site was noted. She found that out. She said, I gotta get this out. So she threw this up and that's what jumped started the web blog. Well, it's up and it's going. I got so much response from people because they wanted to know what was going on uh, in the neighborhood that after she got going for a while, then she updated it to the next one. And the next one was the website that she had intended to build, which was now the McLean Ear website. It's just her though, one person. She's working like a dog. Adam will speak to you about that. <laughs> She's covering everything, but she was so excited about it. And that went on until she said about four months into it, she realized she'd hit a wall. I really want to do this. I love it. This is the best job I've had as a journalist. But I now don't know anything about business. I know nothing about business. And I have to now go 
somewhere to, to, to support this. So what am I going to do? So she said I was going to have to try to talk somebody into doing advertising for me or being my advertising manager or whatever. And she was pondering that and how would this work and blah, blah, blah. When, lo and behold, here comes Patch. So Patch comes in and I say, hey, we like what you're doing. Why start again? Why would you be interested in converting the McLean ear into Patch? And you can pop up Patch if you haven't already. And so now the, what was the McLean ear is the McLean Patch and she's the editor of it. And she loves it. She said to me, I wanna just tell you, it's the greatest thing. I get a little bit more help. She said, it's still very tough because we hire freelancers and it's hard to hire freelancers to do breaking news, which is the news that often is not getting covered as well. So she said, I end up doing a lot of that. Feature stuff I can always have happen. So she told me two stories about doing this, which really I think speaks to what local news can be on either end of the spectrum. She said, I'm sitting having my coffee. A woman comes over to me. She said, my dog is lost. Okay. She said, aren't you the editor of the patch? She said, yeah. So she said, hey, that's what we do. We put it up. Dog lost, blah, 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 blah. Got lots of feedback. Dog found. So, you know, we've responded to the community. On 9-11, here on the op opposite end of the spectrum, she said, I think I should do something that's relative to the, our community, again, that makes sense. We have the counterterrorism department in McLean, Virginia. Nobody knows why it's there, how it got there. So I thought I'll do a story on it. And I call the guy up. How did you get here? What's going on? He says, no comment, CIA. So, <laughs> so she manages to get herself in there to talk to the PR person. Well, I don't know why they have one. Why are you here? You know, why, da, 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 da. And I've discovered that you, know, you don't own this land. So who are you renting from? No comment. So she goes online. And she starts piecing together the Google Maps from the this and that. She figures out where the commercial, it's a commercial um, building owner, and talks to them, pieces it all together, puts it out to the community. Here's how they got here. Here's the history of the counterterrorism department in McLean. One of the people that responded to her story, the guy at the CIA. Interesting story, he says. That <laughs> was really good. So anyway, uh, her point is, whatever happens in my neighborhood, I consider I am doing neighborhood reporting, everything from the lost dog to the CIA report. And she said, this is where I believe uh, local news is going. And I can tell by the engagement of my community that people are really interested in this. So that's that. Now, let me wrap up with what we're doing on the radio show. We wanted to take that kind of spirit, that kind of interest at the very hyper-local level and local level, because they mean different things, and turn that into a radio conversation every day. And we are looking for those stories locally that are, are organic in nature. They come from the community. There's not something that happens nationally that I can make local, because I can do that too. You know, the big study comes out and I can make it local, or I can try to find out what's happening at every neighborhood level. Today I did the Fluff Festival in Somerville. I love that story. I'm wearing the fluff button. So I can do everything like that, including the Dorchester race that we were talking about, that uh, David was talking about. I've done two candidate roundtables of an hour each with featuring every single candidate running. That's just not something you get anywhere anymore. It's not a debate. I'm not interested in having them fighting. I'm interested in them expressing what they stand for, what they're gonna do, and talking with each other. All of my candidate roundtables have gotten a great amount of response, not just from the people in those neighborhoods, certainly they, that's gotten response, but from others as well. 
So that's what I mean by local. That's why I think it's important. I think the growth is important. One of the things that we have to keep in mind is it's more work for, for us as individuals to get out there and get it off. And it's not just going to come to you. You're going to have to go look for it. And maybe it starts with an understanding that local news is important um, and not boring and not just abused animals and salacious murders. But I think that we are offering a lot and there are many more uh, outlets to do so. So the digital age and local news are a match made in heaven. Thanks, Callie. Um, I, I think we'll probably explore the difference between local and hyperlocal a bit as we move on, but uh, it, it's interesting that Callie makes a distinction. Uh, it seems to me, at least from my perspective, that maybe 10 years ago, uh, hyperlocal was a word that was kind of reserved to describe uh, neighborhood or almost street level news and information where local news might be more about an entire community. Uh, it seems that these days the terms are used interchangeably and I think it would be useful if we get back to making some sort of distinction. But I think we'll be talking about that a little more. Uh, our third panelist is Adam Gaffin, who is a professional journalist who worked in community journalism early in his career uh, as a reporter for what uh, is now the Metro West Daily News after many permutations uh, based in Framingham. But uh, of more relevance to this discussion, Adam is the co-founder, publisher, and editor of universalhub.com, uh, where he posts the newsy, the funny, and the just plain weird. Uh, Adam does amazing work uh, keeping on top of what's going on at something like a thousand uh, blogs in eastern Massachusetts and, uh, and linking to what he thinks are the uh, best and most important and funniest posts. And here is my disclosure number three. Uh, my blog, Media Nation, is part of the Boston Blogs ad network that Adam set up a few years ago. And he also handles the technical aspects of helping me get ads onto my site. So we're both getting fabulously wealthy, and uh, I have Adam to thank for this. Well, thank you. Um, since this, this discussion is about an FCC report, I have a couple of comments about that first. Um, it, it was an interesting report, kind of depressing as somebody who's had a lot of friends lose their jobs. I lost my job myself, although I wasn't in, in local media anymore. Um, but I think there was a fundamental problem with that report. The report uh, comes from the assumption that newspaper organizations are the only people that can do local reporting and that they are the only people that should continue to do local reporting. It's sort of like you know, around 1900 when buggy makers, um, if they had gotten the F whatever the equivalent of the FCC was back then to talk about the problems in the buggy industry. Um, I think we're, we are seeing a fundamental transformation in how local news is covered and consumed, and it's, it's an amazing transformation, um, but with any transformation, there is pain. You know, people are losing their jobs, there are gaps in coverage, um, but there's also a lot of ferment, as Dan mentioned. You know, there are ways, uh, there are experiments coming up, and I think ultimately we're going to see some really fascinating stuff. Um, one, of the things that, one of the things that's really changed in the Universal Hub over the last couple of years is, although I still do follow God knows how many blogs in the Boston area, RSS aggregation is a wonderful thing. Um, I'm, I'm doing more of what is sort of like news is conversation. 
doing a lot more breaking news now than I would have a couple of years ago. I'm not just reporting on, you know, a couple bloggers went out to some dinner and they reviewed the restaurant kind of thing. Um, everybody now is, is a mini newsroom on two legs, essentially. Everybody has a camera. Everybody has, you know, a, a Twitter account. And when the red line collapses, as it does roughly once a week, Everybody gets on, on their phones and they tweet, help, I'm stuck under Park Street, or help, Park Street's on fire, or whatever. Um, you know, so it, it's not like we're, we're limited anymore to a small but dedicated staff of reporters covering the news. And this picture is an example of what's going on. Um, it was like 2 in the morning, I think, in Dorchester. You know, who's up at 2 in the morning except firefighters and some odd people with cameras? There's a fire on Mount Ida. There's a fire report comes in on the street in Dorchester. Firefighters get there. There's a car parked in front of the hydrant. What do you do? You can't write it a ticket. You know, the building might be on fire. So look what they did. They stuck the hose. They broke the windows, and they stuck the hose through, and they put out the fire. Somebody was there. They took the picture. They put it up on, um, not Twitter, but TwitPic or, you know, one of those things, and then they tweeted about it. Um, somebody let me know about it. I put that up. You know, it, this started a, a whole long discussion on, on my site. People were talking about it on Twitter. You know, this is, this is user-generated news. Um, Twitter is an amazing tool for that. You know, if, if something happens, like I said, somebody's going to tweet about it. Um, you know, I, I, I can't be everywhere at once. This is where this comes in. If I don't know something, I will tweet it. In fact, Callie, just today, I, I guess it was an experiment or something. Yeah. <laughs> There's a McDonald's in Brighton. She wants to know why are they tearing it down. So she tweeted, she added me on Twitter. So I don't know. I, I, I retweeted Callie's thing. And sure enough, somebody said it, maybe it has to do with this new apartment complex that's going in. But then McDonald's of Eastern Massachusetts, who even knew they had a Twitter account, <laughs> you know, they respond. So it's, it's like this conversation. It's, it's all of a sudden news is no longer one news organization talking to lots of people. It's everybody talking to everybody else. Um, that doesn't mean that there's no role for, for professional journalists. And I think you know, all these people on Twitter are acting as reporters. They're reporting in this sort of bubble around them what's going on. But you still need somebody to act as a filter. You still need somebody to make sense of it. And I think that's where we're going to see the amazing um, opportunities of the future, where you have somebody who is doing this stuff full time who can filter this out, you know, let people know what's going on around their world. And now, if you figure out how to pay for the investigative reporting that the Globe does and the, the enterprise reporting, that's, that's an awesome thing. And who knows, maybe it'll happen here in Boston. Adam, thanks a lot. Uh, I have prepared a bunch of questions. I can see that uh, I won't get through more than a few of them before I turn the conversation over to, to the audience, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but what I would like to do is I do have uh, one question for each of the three of you. Uh, but I hope that all of you will uh, feel that you can chime in if, um, if, you, uh, if you have something to add to it. And I'd like to start with a question for Dave. Um, you have talked about the difficulty of uh, finding a business model to pay for the explosion of local coverage that we're now seeing. Uh, I'm wondering if we ought to be concerned that as giants like the New York Times Company, which owns the globe, uh, Gatehouse Media, uh, AOL's Patch, and others battle it out, trying to extract limited dollars from local business communities, 
uh, is there going to be no place for interesting independent sites? Uh, I'm wondering if this is a matter of corporate chains trying to monopolize the local conversation, just as we've seen for a generation or two with the gobbling up of local newspapers, uh, only this time with a different technology. Um, well, very good question. Uh, I, I have a couple of theories. I don't know the answers. Um, we, um, I think uh, different markets will respond in different ways. I, I think that there are still, uh, first of all, I'll say I'm a journalist. I don't know anything about uh, newspaper uh, business, except that I think over the last four or five years, all of us in this uh, industry have become much, much more familiar with uh, what one of my colleagues uh, referred to as ROI. I said, we need to be tweeting more. She said, what's the ROI? Which is the return on investment. Um, and I realized that we had crossed some sort of line there where one of my reporters is talking about how are we going to make money off of this, whereas uh, several years ago we would be talking about uh, tweeting more or covering more stories or doing something like that. Um, I believe that there are ad dollars to be had at this level. Uh, I also believe that uh, no one has particularly perfected uh, how to how to get those dollars. Uh, the uh, flavor of the of the year seems to be uh, daily deals and uh, deal sites. Um, uh, we are playing in that space. I don't know uh, if you all are, but I know many many other news organizations are and 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 uh, websites are. Um, it, it's another way to connect with connect. Uh, users and, and merchants. Uh, so maybe that's going to be successful, or maybe it'll be some other model. Um, one of the things that I've kind of come away with over the last several months and several years is that each one of these small business owners are members of their communities. And so one way we need to sort of think about this is, is that it's as much a sort of a marketing and outreach um, function when a uh, news organization or website or whatever the outlet is uh, is is selling ads to to a, uh, a merchant uh, it's as much a, a revenue generator of course that's crucial to the to the long-term health of the uh, operation but it's a as much that as it is a uh, a sort of an outreach uh, function to the people in that community um, that same pizza shop owner or shoe store uh, owner or whatever is also, you know, uh, the, the little league coach or, or uh, involved in a local uh, faith community, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I think the key here is going to be how news organizations um, uh, bring those folks into the boat. To the specific question, Dan. Um, I, I'm sort of a moderate. I think that in some ways, some, some news organizations are going to borrow from what we're learning from independence. I think that some news organizations, big news organizations, AOL Patch maybe, uh, will ultimately pull out of this, um, pull out of the hyperlocal space. Um, I think that, um, but I don't think that this, this is going to go away. I think we've, we've identified a, a demand for local news, and I think now what we're trying to do is figure out how, what the model is. Adam, same question, but let me frame it a little bit. Um, Debbie Gallant, who is the co-founder of BaristaNet, one of the best-known uh, independent local sites in the country, uh, recently uh, formed an, an alliance called Authentically Local. 
and, uh, and it's, it's been joined by some of the best known independent sites in the country, including the New Haven Independent, including the Batavian. And uh, she's pretty worried about Patch. And you could, it's Patch in her area, but you could, in this area, you could say Patch plus Wicked Local plus your town. Um, are the folks that you deal with, are the folks that you aggregate and point to, uh, are they scared? Or are they saying, you know, I really could have done more, but it doesn't really make any sense with these big players uh, coming into my backyard? That's an interesting question. Um, the Boston market is, is actually a very interesting and, and almost, in, in some ways, undeveloped market for online advertising, uh, hyper-local advertising. We're not Seattle, where they have full-time people selling ads now for hyper-local well, blog sites. Um, we've never really developed that. So the, the folks that I'm dealing with are not, they're not in it for the money. They're doing it because they enjoy writing, they enjoy covering their community. Um, in fact, there's, there's a, a, a very good site in the North End called North End Waterfront News, which is run by a guy in his, in his spare time. He doesn't want to have anything to do with advertising. You know, he's just doing it for the love of covering his community. He does a great job at it. Um, so it hasn't been the same kind of issue that, that she's worried about, where she's doing it full time, or where in Seattle, for example, like the West Seattle blog, where it's, two, it's a husband and wife and one just does advertising full time. Um, that having been said, I, I don't think, I'm not particularly concerned about the globe and patch, you know, stomping on me. Um, if you go back even 20 years before, before the web, there's, always, there's never really been a monopoly of, of newspapers in this, in this market. You've always had weekly papers that have managed to survive and thrive. South End News, Dorchester Reporter. It's a whole series of all, sort of like alternative and smaller media outlets that have somehow managed to make money despite this 800-pound gorilla you know, that's constantly coming after them. And I think you're seeing the same thing online, that, that there are opportunities. Um, I think the problem for a lot of us is that we're journalists. You know, we come to this as reporters. I don't have no business sense whatsoever. When we do our taxes, my wife has to double check it because invariably I make a mistake. You know, so we need to get better at that, like they are doing in Seattle. Can I add something to this? Yes, please do, Callie. Um, with regard to Patch and my friend Bobby Bowman, who runs the the McLean Patch that was one time her own web blog called McLean Ear. Uh, I asked her the question, I said, you come from a very strong journalism background and you really, really knew this community. So I, when I go to journalism conferences, Patch is hiring everywhere. So this is different from hiring somebody and bringing them in to know all the nooks and crannies. And she said, no, that's a, that's a totally different thing. I said, I can see the success that uh, McLean Patch would have that my own Belmont Patch, and for some reason I get it all the time, they're like off the mark many times because I don't know I don't know the who the person is doing it, but I don't I know it doesn't drill down to the extent that she's doing it at this point. Though it's getting better, gotta say I keep watching it. It's getting better. So what I think where I think they could turn the tables and have an advantage is if they stop just hiring broadly in this way, but really go to those communities and maybe try to get your North End guy or get or you know or try to reach out. Then I think something else happens. And I just wanted to point out that the CEO of AOL made a comment about Patch this week. 
he was speaking at a conference and he said they expect they intend to spend about $160 million. This is Tim Armstrong. And he says, we are looking for the local online advertising. Now, remember I told you my friend Bobby said, I can't deal. Same thing. Can't deal with the advertising. Don't know what's going on. I said, I've looked at the advertising on your site. Do you know what's on there? No, she says to me. So I said, well, you got Nordstrom's, you've got a lot of local stuff. She said, those are the people who are, the patch people are going to get it. Uh, Mr. Armstrong says, uh, the fact that Google acquired the restaurant review firms Zagat this earlier this month, or maybe Zagat, is a proof point that local is really important. So the focus for them will be on local and regional advertisers. That's where they're going. And he says now a lot of major Fortune 500 companies are coming to us. So we'll see how this goes in terms of the business model of it. But that's where they're going, at least at this point. And, and I must say this for Patch, because it's, it's uh, a lot of the independents tend to beat up on them. And a lot of us are wondering what their business model really is. But I'll give them this. Uh, those patch editors uh, work their butts off. Oh, yeah, uh, last spring, I was uh, trying to upload a some sort of an announcement about our Boy Scout troop to our local patch site. And uh, I sent an email to the uh, local editor, figuring I might hear from her the next day. It's like 11 at night, and she's guiding me through it. I mean, it was, it was really quite remarkable. Uh, and they've developed some pretty slick tools for doing that, too. So I give them credit for that. Uh, I have a question for Callie. Um, but again, I'm hoping that all of you might have something to say about this. You know, public stations such as GBH, uh, public radio stations such as WGBH, are actually threatened with extinction by technology. Uh, in a very few years, there'll really be no need for terrestrial radio stations uh, in order to hear Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and other national programming. I imagine that WGBH's and WBUR's push into local programming is a way of anticipating and counteracting that challenge. But do you think that interest in local news and public affairs is such that listeners can be enticed into tuning into what you're doing rather than just tuning into NPR via satellite or Wi-Fi or whatever it will be? Uh, I do, and um, I can say that I'm looking at the interest that we get from people who are responding now. Uh, again, if, if you understand in the digital space that pretty much you, the consumer, have to get out there yourself and find something. I mean, I might stumble across something while I'm looking for something else, but if I'm really interested in local news and I'm really, I wanna go to those sites that can answer the question, I put the question on Universal Hub or where else, then I've gotta put some initi initiative out there. And I think that for those people who really are hungering for what is going on in my neighborhood, in my community, uh, then they will seek it out. And if we've done a good job in trying to uh, do those stories that speak to that and are not you know, sort of a watered down national story. We really have paid attention to what's organic. And I get a lot from my contributors. Adam's gonna be on my show tomorrow. I mean, we started off on my show making a space weekly for a kind of conversation about local news that has to do with the people that are producing it, uh, that come from the small papers, that come from the, the, the small online uh, ventures because we're interested in that and so are our listeners. So I think as long as there's interest in what's going on in your neighborhood, and again, I you know, look around and see, people are interested in their neighborhood. I think that interest, and in fact, I think it's grown because you can't find it 
casually as you may have been able to do in the past? You know, back when WBUR kind of had the field to itself, it seemed that every time they developed a great new local show, uh, their next step was to turn it into a national show so that they could get money from other radio stations. Um, has the thinking in public radio changed? Does that is that not as successful a model today as it was maybe 10 years ago? I think it depends on the show. And I think that uh, when, when VUR was the only game in town for this, it made sense for them because they want to have their programs a part of the <coughs> listings of national NPR shows and available, and that would draw other listeners to them. Um, when GBH decided to make this move, to really to, you know, to make an, uh, an all-talk format on uh, 89.7, but to look at, well, what are the options available? Do you want to repeat trying to just have all national NPR? That was a choice, could do that. But as Adam has said, there's so much going on here that we could talk about, so why not try a local show? And why not try a local talk show that doesn't mimic what some of the features that people find annoying on a local commercial talk show? So that... You know, one of the huge things I hear every day is you allow people to finish the sentence, to finish their thought. I get a chance to hear what's going on, and that's the kind of conversation that we want to create on the Callie Crossley Show every day. We want people to talk. It's not that I'm not going to challenge you, but I want you to get your thought out. And okay. that, I think, makes a difference for a lot of people. Great. Now, that was kind of a radio-specific question, but let me broaden this out a bit to get Adam and uh, Dave involved in this. You know, um, back before reading online was as common as it is today, uh, there was a phenomenon called the New York Times effect. And, and the way that the New York Times effect is described is that when a region would suddenly get the national edition of the New York Times made available in their area, and you could get home delivery of it, you would start to see an increase uh, in knowledge about national and international affairs and a concomitant decrease in knowledge about local affairs because people who were most interested in the news just didn't care about local news as much as they did national and international news. Um, I guess I'm wondering, do you, do, do you still detect uh, something of a bias against local news uh, as you try to uh, engage in local conversations on your sites? Well, it's, it's, um, for me, it's, it's, I can't really answer that question because all I do is local stuff. So I have a sort of self-selecting audience. Um, the very name of my site is, an, is a Boston in-joke. Nobody else west of Worcester gets that joke. Um, <laughs> You know, so I'm sad. <laughs> it's it. I'm, I'm going specifically for the kind of people who would care about local news, and I'm sure there there are tons of people who don't care about what the Boston School Committee does, even in the city of Boston. Um, but you know, there's enough spaces infinite on the web, so that hopefully they'll find something else they're interested in. Um, you know, you don't abandon basic journalism and basic uh, reporting for this. You're still trying to find stories that are interesting to a broad range of people. Um, that's one of the reasons I'm personally interested in really strange, quirky stuff. And again, it may be a self-selecting audience. It may be a self-selecting audience, but there seems to be people out there who like that kind of weird stuff to balance out all the all the murders and and, and horrible murders and crimes and all that kind of stuff. 
Okay. And Dave? Uh, I'm with Adam. I mean, I'm I'm so immersed in in local. Um, I, I don't see a a bias against what we're doing. I I, I think uh, people love our stories and love what we're doing. Um, uh, I I think the globe has, you know, I'm not familiar with every single single strategic um, uh, driver in this, but it's clearly repositioned itself over the last five or ten years. We we closed down some. Uh, some international uh, bureaus. Uh, we still have a very robust national uh, uh, report from our Washington bureau, but we have focused more and more on what is important to Greater Boston, and that's part of uh, what I'm doing with the print regional sections as well as the sites, and we have uh, plenty of other sections and stories about what's going on in Greater Boston. Okay, terrific. And I think that we can get in one more round uh, before we turn it over to uh, the folks in the audience. And I would like to begin with Adam on this one. Uh, you know, a lot of the sites that Universal Hub links to are examples of that much abused term, citizen journalism. Uh, unpaid enthusiasts who have something to say about where they live. Uh, in terms of local news value, I'm wondering what do you think citizen journalists are good at and what do you think they're not so good at? And in line with that, what sort of relationship between professional journalism and citizen journalism would you like to see in Greater Boston that we don't have at the moment? Okay, a uh, couple things on that. One is I, I think you're not hearing the term, or at least I'm not dealing with the term citizen journalism as much um, as I was a few years ago. A few years ago, you know, the big thing was everybody had to have a blog, and everybody was covering the neighborhoods, and they were spending lots of time doing it. Um, Lisa Williams in Watertown was an excellent example of that. She started out by watching city, I think it was city council meetings, you know, at night in her, in her living room, and she started reporting on it. It's wonderful. Um, now, though, again, as I mentioned in, in the beginning, you know, everybody's reporting about what's going on right around them. And I think um, it's not so much, you know, citizen journalism sounds like people who are dedicated to this thing. It's more like if somebody sees something, they're gonna write about it, but normally they just, then they, they disappear. And the question is, how do you harness that? Um, you know, I, I personally am fascinated with Twitter, so I use that a lot more. I'm sure Facebook, you could do the same thing. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's all these people out there they're reporting these little bits, these sort of atoms of molecules of information. It really still takes somebody to put that all together so that when somebody goes on Twitter at 10.30 at night and says, I'm in, the, I'm in the, um, the, the piano factory in the South End, there's all the smoke, what's going on? You know, all right, so what's going on? So you retweet that and you turn out there's a nine, what turns into a nine alarm fire about a mile away in Roxbury. All of a sudden, everybody's reporting little pieces of that. And as a reporter, what I was doing was retweeting the, the, you know, the, the stuff that most people didn't know about yet. You know, it's, again, news is conversation. Um, at the same time, you, have, you do have to be careful. You know, there, you don't know what's the validity of some of this stuff. Um, you have to learn to trust your sources just as, as you do with, in a traditional newsroom. Um, but I think the role is to try to bring people who are writing for a living full time together with these, both the citizen journalists who still are out there, but also just people wandering around, you know, doing their 140 characters because something just caught on fire in front of them. Okay. You once, uh, you once spoke to my students, and I thought you put it very well at that time. You said that uh, 
We were talking about the, a big explosion that took place in Danvers a few years ago. It was so well known that probably some of you still remember it. Uh, it was down the street from me. Um, and uh, I remember what you said at that time is that, uh, is that citizen journalists are very good, maybe better than the traditional media, at, uh, at telling you, hey, Danversport just blew up. Uh, <laughs> but we still need the traditional media to come in and tell us why Danversport yeah, just blew up, which I thought was a, gr a great way of uh, putting that. Um, do either Dave or Callie have any reaction to this? Well, what I was going to say is that uh, uh, Lisa Williams, H2O a blog, when I stumbled across it, I was so excited. That was my first you know, appreciation of somebody really being focused on a neighborhood. I don't live in Watertown. I live in Cambridge. But I was just fascinated. First of all, I thought it was such a cute title, H2O. I thought, oh, yeah, Watertown. I love that. So, I mean, so that just got me. And then I was really interested in her covering some of this mundane stuff. And I followed it for a long time. And that was at the same time where I had real strong feelings about the use of the term citizen journalism for the reasons you just said. Um, even though I don't know why I felt I could trust her, maybe because she was doing so many of the mundane things and not just the fun things that one would be available. So I know how powerful that can be in a community. And of course, it's broadened and become different things now, but, uh, and she doesn't do it anymore. But that was my first sort of bringing brought, being brought into the world of citizen journalism at that hyper-local level. And I thought it was a fascinating thing and it would definitely be around for a while. Um, how it plays out now is very interesting as more and more of these things are come together. And I think Adam is, Adam is right. You, somebody has to pull it together. And who is the somebody? <laughs> and uh, Dave, I wonder, um, regardless of how we define citizen journalism, uh, what, uh, what use or reliance do the Your Town sites make on whatever citizen journalism that's out there? Well, part of the model is to, to link to area blogs. Uh, one of the assumptions going in would, what was that we would be linking to blogs in each and every one of these communities, uh, you know, prompted by the Lisa Williams ex uh, experience. Uh, what we found is that, you know, that's an uneven model. Uh, some, some towns, some neighborhoods have lots of blogs, some don't. And, and obviously what's occurred in the last few years is, as Adam says, we've gone to, to Twitter to a large extent and Facebook and, 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 you know, for other types of distribution models. Um, I'm with, with Adam on this. I mean, I think that ultimately somebody needs to be a convener. Um, you know, we're trying to position ourselves as, as the, the convener of, uh, you know, a conversation as well, uh, probably with a, more of an injection of, of uh, feed on the street reporting and a little more why. Um, and, you know, using our, our brand name and the, you know, the, the standing that we have in these communities. So when we've gone in these communities with these sites, you know, people are delighted that we're, we're paying more attention to them and covering them more fully. So. Okay, terrific. Well, we have come to the end of our first hour, and uh, now it's your turn. And I see that we have two microphones set up on either side of the uh, auditorium here. So uh, we ask that you, if you're looking to ask a question, uh, that you make use of one of those. This is being recorded for online video, and if you do not ask your question into the microphone, uh, it will be lost for posterity, so, uh, so we do ask you to do that. And uh, what I'd also like to ask is that, although it's perfectly fine to direct a question at one of our panelists, 
Uh, a good question is a question that might be directed to one panelist, but that can also touch on things that other panelists can talk about. So uh, why don't we have at it? And it looks like we may be getting off to a slow start here. <laughs> don't be shy. But we have a question right over here, sir. Yes. Um, a comment and then a question. Uh, first of all, on the impact of the patch and some of the other uh, chains of local news services. I live in central Massachusetts, and Main Street Connect is making inroads from suburban New York and ringing the Worcester area. Um, they, like most other digital enterprises, still haven't figured out how to make money. Uh, Patch, uh, as we've seen, is getting a, a big infusion of cash from AOL. There's a, a piece on the wire today how they're going to target certain areas for profitability uh, with the result that they're still, we're all still trying to figure out how to make money. So that was the comment. The question is, you know, we've, you talked about getting a response from the local patch editor at 11 o'clock at night, the uh, Herculean efforts that many single reporter editor Remember the Al Franken bit where he's standing out in the field with the satellite dish on his head on Saturday Night Live? You know, I mean, it's come true. Yep. And so we're reliant on often unmarried young people with yep. lots of stamina, lots of Red Bull, able to uh, put in these uh, enormous amount of hours at ridiculously low pay. I mean, your journalism has never been paying well, but it's still troublesome. So is that sustainable? Are we going to burn people out in a year or two and be left with uh, just kind of digital rubble? Who would like to take a shot at that? Adam? Um, that, is not, that is not new. When I, when I was one of those young kids, we didn't have Red Bull back then, we just had coffee but, and, and whiskey, lots of whiskey and <laughs> people's deaths. Um, as long as there are journalism departments, they're going to be kids who want to go into journalism. And they're going, to, they're going to work the ridiculous hours. And yes, a lot of them will unfortunately burn out because you cannot sustain 60 hours a week, especially once you get married and maybe have a kid. It's just impossible. But the, then the next generation comes. Um, you know, journalism has always been like that. The one good thing, one of the good things about Patch, which when I talk to like Dan's class or other classes, is for the first time in six or seven years, you can tell these kids, hey, there's actual jobs out there. You don't have to go into public, excuse me, public relations. You can actually go into reporting with the proviso that, yes, you're going to burn yourself out. Um, whether patches it long term is a sustainable business model is, is probably a different question. Yeah, I would say that um, some part of that has happened a lot. But I have to say that the, 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 it, it seems to me that just listening to the patch stories, it's really grueling. I mean, it's, it's hard, hard. Um, and um, I think the editors are very, very busy as well, but the people who are on the ground doing the stories, those young people, uh, um, they're not getting paid very well. I mean, that's part of the model. The editors, they really try to recruit well because they need somebody who, who if there's going to be the person collecting the stories or editing the stories, they really need somebody with an eye toward knowing what they're doing. So in that way, then, that investment makes sense. Uh, it then, if that's the model they're going to go to, the sites that are most affluent, then what happened with my friend Bobby is right on point. 
in so many ways. She was an excellent journalist as an editor. She knows how to, you know, aggregate information. And we're in McLean, Virginia, where, as she pointed out to me, the three top sellers of uh, news product in her town are the Wall Street Journal, um, well, it's four, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Economist, which is sold in her community at the CVS. She said, I ask you, is there any other place in the country where they're selling the Economist at the CVS? No. So if, the, if somebody on high from Patch looked at that and thought, this is exactly where we want to be, we're going to get, we're getting, she's already getting responses. She's got the built-in traffic coming. And we have some profitability that's a good possibility here in terms of getting some advertising. Then this is what we may end up with. If that's the case, then I'm kind of fascinated by the fact that Patch has not come to Cambridge. They're in Belmont. You know, it's kind of interesting to me. So I'm not quite, I, don't, I still don't understand quite how they are making a decision just yet. And ask you a question about who burns out, they're going to burn out. So something else is going to have to happen. They're going to have to figure out ways of, uh, particularly if they want, if, if what people are looking for, and I think they are, is some breaking news combination with the feature stuff. they got to put some people on staff to do that. Uh, and maybe that will happen after they figure out exactly which communities they want to you know, uh, support. And uh, did you want to take a uh, shot at know, that, they, Dave? They've made, a, they've made a huge bet uh, whether, whether they're going to, you know, be able to uh, live on is a really an open question. I think the whole industry is sort of watching this. Uh, you know, the same story uh, that you all pointed out uh, said that uh, they spent 160 million this year. Um, now they're talking about focusing on a handful of sites to make them profitable. Um, they're in uh, the, the selection of communities uh, is more uh, toward the uh, McLeans and the Wellesleys and the Westons. Uh, they're not in uh, Mattapan. Uh, uh, we are, um, you know, uh, they're not in Rossi, uh, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, they're making some interesting selections. Uh, we have a different responsibility uh, to all of our readers, and uh, we'll see what happens. We've been here, you know, for 100 and some odd years, so. Let me offer my own response to your question because uh, I, I want to throw something else on the table here, um, and that is, you know, one of the crises that journal that professional journalism is dealing with in recent years has been the um, the absolute collapse of the traditional advertising model. In large measure, that's what we're talking about tonight. Uh, so you have. Um, news organizations chasing after very scarce ad dollars, and that probably isn't going to change. Um, in my research and reporting for my book, what I found was that the for-profit community sites like Baristanet, like the Batavian, are absolutely scraping to get by. Mm. Uh, the Batavian, you've got one guy, full-time, Howard Owens, former top executive for Gatehouse Media, and he's reinvented himself as, as this local journalist, um, spends, you know, he's working 12, 15 hours a day, selling ads, covering the news, uh, with a little bit of help from his wife and a part-time ad person. Uh, the Baristanet folks, uh, they've all got other interests. You've got two or three people who are working maybe 20 hours a week apiece, not making a lot of money. In this world, the money, at least at the moment, is in the nonprofit sector. The New Haven Independent employs five full-time journalists. No one's getting rich, but in terms of what community journalists have traditionally made, 
they're doing okay. Uh, the Connecticut Mirror, which is a larger nonprofit that covers Connecticut politics and government, has 10 or 11 full-time journalists. They have the largest statehouse bureau in Connecticut now because the Hartford Current has cut back so much. They have the only Washington reporter of any news organization in Connecticut. Now, the problem with nonprofit is you wonder, will the money run out at some point? Mm. And I think the challenge, I would define the challenge this way. There are a lot of nonprofits out there. I shouldn't say a lot because it's a small movement. But there are nonprofit news sites out there that are heavily dependent on getting their money from the Knight Foundation, which has kind of been the endless source of, uh, of, of money for experimenting with these kinds of nonprofit websites. Instead, and again, what the New Haven Independent has done, what Voice of San Diego has done in a very successful way, you need to tap into that local foundation community. Uh, the most important funder of the New Haven Independent is the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven. And you put yourself in the awkward position of competing with programs that serve, you know, poor families yeah. and, uh, and, and, and the sick and the elderly and people like that. But you talk to some of the more enlightened foundation executives and they will tell you that ultimately their whole mission is endangered if there is no decent local journalism to keep the community conversation going and to hold local government and institutions to account. So I'm not sure that the advertising model is ever really going to work again on the scale that it used to. Certainly it's not at the moment. Uh, I do think that um, nonprofit is uh, not the way to go, but a very promising alternative to the uh, to the for-profit model. We've got people lining up, so let me get right to that. You've been very patient, sir. Thanks. Uh, first off, thank you all for being here. Um, my question actually comes out of an interesting situation that arose during the, uh, the riots in England at the start of last month. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the Greater Manchester Police Bureau, uh, after processing the first wave of, of uh, people that they arrested during the actual riots, they um, proceeded to engage in what they called naming and shaming of the convicted rioters on Twitter. Um, so they went on Twitter and somehow they fit this into 140 characters, the names, addresses, uh, the, the charges and the sentences of each of these convicted um, rioters was shared on Twitter, um, which resulted in a, a lot of sort of uh, talk in, in, on the web about whether that was appropriate. Um, whether the, the police were overstepping their bounds and maybe even inciting uh, retributory violence against the people whose names have been shared there. Um, so I guess my, my question is, given that these uh, hyperlocal websites are, uh, technically speaking, just as retrievable and just as accessible as, uh, as a site like Twitter, um, considering the fact that the, the real difference between Twitter and, say, something like Patch is really a question of address and of framing, not really a, a technical difference in how accessible the data is across the world. Uh, so the, the question that I have is, 
what are the ethical implications of uh, taking to the web with, with what might be local information? I mean, given that um, the, the naming of convicted offenders in local police blotters has been a fairly innocuous uh, uh, function of, of local media for a very long time. Um, so so how, how do the, the ethics change as you, as you take to the, to the web with this local information? And um, also just I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this uh, anecdote about the, what the Manchester Police Bureau did. Thanks. Uh, terrific question. Um, I can tell you what we do. I can give you a little bit of a, um, uh, a couple of other examples that I know other, what other sites are doing. Uh, and I can tell you that I think you're putting your finger on something that's really kind of interesting, and I don't know what, if, if we have a solid answer to it right now. Uh, the, the position that, uh, you know, uh, I guess I'm the traditionalist here. I think that's pretty, pretty fair. Uh, the, tradition we would, would, the position we would take is that, uh, you know, a, a, a public record is a public record, um, and that uh, so long as it, it's an accurate depiction of what uh, the police have, have said or put into their records, uh, we would put it into uh, a police blotter uh, online. Um, but your very point, um, you know, brings up a lot of a lot of concerns um, about uh, people's reputations and how that lasts forever online. Um, the issue um, often is, uh, I was found not guilty. Where's the story? That used to happen. It still happens in the in the print print side of things, but it also happens online. Um, or this is still living online. Um, how can I get it taken down? And uh, you know, we deal with that on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, you know, the first the first line of defense is, is or defense or first response is is of course if it's uh, if it's an accurate depiction of what the court records or the police documents say. Um, as to what happened in and well, let me give one other example here low, uh, in the U.S. Some sites, um, including at my, my former newspaper, the St. Petersburg Times, has been, have been actually publishing uh, booking photos, um, uh, which uh, you know, was kind of shocking uh, when they first started doing that a couple of years ago. Uh, Florida has a much broader public records law. They can access that material much more easily and get it to their site much more easily. Um, uh, so that's another you know, factoid to throw around. Obviously, you know, they, the culture of that community and of that, um, that state is much more open and um, in terms of public records. And per so perhaps it's not as much of a shock as it would be as if that were to start happening here. There might be sites that are doing this already here in, in, uh, in Massachusetts. Um, uh, you know, as to, you know, the other uh, thing with the London police, I mean, the only thought that I had there is, is that it's just fascinating to me the way institutions and police in particular are using Twitter and websites uh, much more. You know, as Callie pointed out, the uh, Cambridge police have their own site. Uh, you know, the Boston police have a, have a Twitter account. You know, we would expect that, but when the Wellesley Police Department has a Twitter account and a guy who actually goes out and takes terrific pictures and posts them on a regular basis. And, you know, again, we've, we've crossed into some new place here. Um, you know, that, it, it, what, what you're describing is, is far uh, less innocuous than, than what I'm describing here. Not that the crimes that uh, Boston or Wellesley or Cambridge puts up are innocuous by any means, 
but it seemed to be, it sounds like what you're describing is sort of a strategy to embarrass or sort of call out. Uh, they were already convicted. They weren't, um, yeah. I'm not familiar with, yeah. with exactly what happened there. Well, they were convicted in about three hours over okay. there. Yeah, so I don't true. think there was uh, much waiting they had to do. Yeah, I've, I've run into the same issue with, um, with I mean, if it's once it's on the web, it's forever. This isn't really a local news issue, though. Um, stuff gets posted on Facebook all the time that probably shouldn't be posted. There have been a couple of murders um, in the South End recently where people posted stuff probably out of anger or whatever that, you know, in, so, in some of the cases they took it down. Um, but it's, it's not just something that journalists have to deal with. But I have had some cases where it seems like the Boston police like to make examples of people. Um, they had, there was a case just the other day which I did write about where these two people are charged with um, breaking into a, well, going into a 7-Eleven downtown and threatening the store clerk and then one of them punched out a window on their way out. They got away with like several bags of Rice Krispie treats. You know, it's a stupid story. It's the kind of thing you can't not write about. But, you know, one, one of these guys is 19. And the DA's office sent me their, their booking photos, you know, and, and so what happens when he's 25 now? Um, and I have had people um, email me, you know, asking, it's been several years, can you take this thing down? And on a case-by-case -case basis, if it's, if it's a, it's always people with innocuous cases, you know, like somebody who's been convicted of, like, assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, they're not, they're not emailing me. Somebody who's been charged with, like, I had one with a noise complaint. You know, something like that, I'll, I'll take it down because it's been five years and it's not like he's going around making noise or whatever. Um, but that's, you know, something everybody has to deal with. You just have to be careful about what you, not just what the police do. I would just say that, you know, it just makes you uncomfortable or it makes me, and I don't know why, because David has just said it's a public record. I mean, I could go read it down there. I mean, why does it sitting up there online seem to say something else? And I think perhaps because it is the permanence of it and that if I would go to the police station to look at it, that would take some effort on my part more than if I'm just flipping through one night and I happen to hit the booking photo of the guy in Manchester and I go, isn't that so-and-so's cousin? You know, then I send it to 15 more people. I, I don't know. It just, uh, I think these are issues we're going to have to work through as, as they happen. But, it, but a public record is a public record. So I'm not quite sure what to do about that. What makes concerns me about that particular case is, and why the question was asked, well, were they convicted, is that in any of those riot situations, unless somebody has a camera from eight different angles, somebody was probably just standing there. I, I just firmly believe that. And then somehow they're caught up in this, and, and there you have it. Now, maybe they were standing there yelling the wrong thing, but they were just standing there. I just know that. I don't know why I know that, but it's probably from years of just covering stuff. And it makes me uncomfortable that suddenly they're in a campaign um, uh, fostered by the police, and, and it's up there forever. Well, there are, a public record is a public record, but there are public records and there are public records. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and let me offer an example that uh, we don't really have to do anything with except maybe think about it a little bit. Um, if, uh, let's say, 25 years ago, if we had had same-sex marriage in Massachusetts and there had been a campaign to overturn that and return to the days where we did not have same-sex marriage, 
uh, people would have had to sign petitions to get this question on the ballot. And if you wanted to see who would sign these petitions, you would have to uh, drive into Boston, uh, visit the McCormick Building behind the State House, and go look up the record somewhere. It was a lot of work. And, uh, and unless you would brought more quarters than, uh, than you could possibly uh, carry in your pockets, you'd probably be taking notes by hand. Uh, today, uh, things like that are instantly put up online. And of course, in Massachusetts, being opposed to same-sex marriage is a very unpopular position. Uh, so you had a situation a few years ago when, when people were actually trying to put this measure on the ballot uh, where there were some uh, anti-same-sex marriage conservatives who were uh, said that they were getting threatened, they were scared. And um, you might say, well, that's the price of democracy, but you end up with a situation in which you may have a chilling effect uh, in which people are very reluctant to sign controversial uh, petitions. And uh, for those of us who think that same-sex marriage is a good thing, you might say, well, tough. But next time, it might be your issue or my issue. And so it does raise some questions that I don't think we had uh, back before this stuff was so instantly available. And, and didn't that happen in California around Prop 8? It they did were doing a map Absolutely. situation of people who were opposed to Prop 8. Absolutely, yeah. and, and yeah. people were reporting yeah. that they'd been threatened in their yeah. homes, and uh, you can plot it right on a Google map. Yeah. Oh, that's where he lives. Yeah. No. Uh, yes, we have a question over here. Yeah, um, so kind of going back to the first question about... Could, you, could I ask you to speak up, please? Sorry. I'm old and deaf. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess um, something that I'm kind of conflicted about is when, when you have local news on the internet, what happens to those communities who don't have a lot of access to the internet? Like, how are they gonna get their local news? Is it just a question of communities with access to internet have probably have higher ad revenue, so that's what we're gonna focus on? And does that leave a lot of people out? Discuss. <laughs> yes, well, there, there's actually two sides to that. One is, it, what you're fi you'll find is communities with lower rates of internet access also tend to have lower coverage. As David pointed out, Patch is not covering Mattapan and Roxbury and Dorchester and, and even Roslindale. But Cambridge is like, I don't get that. I don't get it either. You know, but yeah. um, I, I think internet access is not going to be as, as, access to the internet is not going to be as big an issue as it may have been a few years ago. Um, not only do all, are all the libraries equipped with terminals now, you now have, even if it's a token effort, Comcast, for example, just announced some program to uh, give low-cost computers to people who have who are on school lunch programs. You know, so I think as, as the cost of computing, as the cost of internet access comes down, that's going to be less of an issue. What becomes more of an issue is, is the information itself. If there's nobody in Roxbury reporting on what's going on in Roxbury, and, I, and there really isn't. The banner covers the black community, mm -hmm. but it's more than just Roxbury. Right. Um, you know, who is going to step up and cover that? The Globe does now. They were, they were late to Roxbury. It was one of the, you know, Roxbury and Dorchester were not among their first communities, but they're there now. <coughs> okay, yes, and, and, and the Dorchester reporter yeah. covers Mattapan and Dorchester. I'm not saying there's no coverage, but, you know, the town of Milton, it has, it has a patch site, it has a your town site, it has a gatehouse site. It's this little nothing town where, sure, every couple of years, some high school kid 
goes berserk and kills all his, you know, his neighbors or something. But in general, nothing happens there. You know. Send the emails to Adam. <laughs> no, it's, it's like, it's like you know, they've got this surfeit of coverage. And, and a community site. Uh, uh, yes, yes, called, that's right. There's uh, like guy, your, your Milton or, exactly. or something like you that. You know, so at some point, we, 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 I think, you know, and this is something that's bothered me for a while because when you hear about Roxbury, what do you hear about? You hear about the murders. Mm -hmm. You hear about, you know, the horrible things. And I think when there were four people who were murdered in Mattapan um, last year. And it was pretty shocking to see the reaction that the, report, the mainstream reporters got because they don't cover Mattapan. All of a sudden, all these guys with cameras and everything are showing up. People are really pissed in Mattapan to the point where there was a reporter for one radio station, which I won't name, but it wasn't GBH, you know, um, wrote, wrote a piece about how somebody put her hand up and said, don't take my, the photograph of this woman coming out of church. And what did the reporter do? Told the photographer to take a picture of the woman. You know, so that there's, there's a disconnect between um, the news and certain communities. And that is an issue. That is something I'd love to see you know, dealt with. I just happened to stumble across the Roxbury site while we, we talk about this. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess the position we would take is that, that we're trying to provide news and information to people where they want it and when they want it. You know, we haven't really talked about mobile. You're, you're set up uh, very well to deliver, deliver news via your Twitter feed on mobile. You know, we're, we're providing news and information from a uh, print uh, product, the newspaper that circulates throughout Greater Boston, um, as well as websites, as well as an increased mobile presence, as well as, uh, you know, we have video on our site. Um, so uh, we're trying to do it on, on whatever platform, including print, uh, that, um, you know, that serves the, the readers. And we're, you know, we're looking at the different, uh, at, the, at the market in that way. I would note that officers crackdown on underage drinking is a story from the Huntington News, which is the Northeastern University student newspaper. Just thought I'd put in a plug. Um, if, um, if, if, I could, if I could just add one thing to what David has said, though, I think the mobile technology is really going to make a difference. You may or may not know that the, the you know, there's an incredible number, and I wish I had the exact data right now, but the, uh, the, the community most likely to have uh, cell phones are Latinos to begin with. So if you start looking at communities where there may be um, uh, impacts of, of uh, Latino f folks living, then that's, there's an opportunity there to get some information to them that way. Same thing, and uh, you know, black folk are right behind them. So there may be in some of these communities that are underserved by uh, print product or even by online product that somehow that comes together on the web in a way uh, through mobile technology. Could I, could I ask a follow-up question to well, that? Well, be before you do, I, let me make one observation because I think that the nonprofit um, model fits in with this as well. And, and then I'd love to hear from you. I'm sorry. And then we have more questions too. Um, you know, New Haven is a uh, largely African-American, Latino, poor community. And uh, the New Haven Independent has put an extraordinary effort into covering uh, public school reform, uh, neighborhood stories, all the sorts of things that are not particularly interesting to affluent readers in the suburbs and the advertisers who are trying to reach them. So uh, I, I think that the nonprofit 
model is absolutely vital for reaching these underserved communities because for the most part, advertisers aren't interested in those folks, so you need to reach them through other ways. And I'm sorry, sure. please, okay. please ask Thank your follow-on. Um, as, a, as a follow-on to that, um, while there are great inroads, and in if you, uh, when I look at, uh, I live right outside of Worcester, and when I look at the uh, just Twitter feeds in the area, three quarters of them are in Spanish because of the, um, mm. you know, the high activity among the Latino local Latino community. Um, but, you know, I, I get up early in the morning, I see where the uh, print newspaper is delivered in our neighborhood. It's to us and to the 70-year-old couple living next door to me, and then they leave because there's nobody else getting the print paper. As a result, we get a 16-page paper on Monday. There's just, it's a newsletter. Um, people who do not have a, not just access, because you're know, going to the library to read a, a newspaper online is something that you know, the, the folks just are not going to do. So we are leaving a lot of folks behind, a lot of folks for whom digital access is not necessarily a function of money, it's a function of, of training, of experience, of, of attitude. You know, we, we see this, the sort of stickiness that uh, Facebook and some other entities are trying to cultivate to get people to live inside that world. And there's a lot of people, um, and when the marketing used to be for TV and for newspapers, you know, people north of 45 used to be the sweet spot. That's where you wanted to go because they had the, the free cash. Uh, they're being left behind by this by this move, and I, you know, I don't mind it. I, you know, I, I live and I love this stuff, but I'm seeing my neighbors, I'm seeing my peers, I'm even seeing, you know, my, my kids who are in their 40s who are saying, where do I get the news? You know, I go to boston.com, but, I, but I, I can't get to the local newspaper because it's all behind a firewall. Well, they, okay, maybe getting, one quick response okay. and then we'll move on. They're getting it from Facebook, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, as, as I mentioned, there, there have been a couple of murders in the South End recently. News about those murders spread way faster on Facebook. If you knew the if you if you were from Vila Victoria, you knew who was dead within an hour. Whereas the mainstream media people like me didn't have it. We may have had that there was a shooting, but we didn't know who the person was. You know, people are are informing themselves. Um, that's why you are seeing news organizations going into multiple platforms. You know it. It isn't just paper anymore. It's not even just a website anymore. It is Facebook. It is Twitter. It's, it's mobile. You know, as Kelly said, everybody has a cell phone now. All, almost all cell phones now you can get news on. You know, and you're just going to see that continue, that, that trend. Okay, we have a question over here. I uh, just had a general question, as, and I, we've gone over mostly the print and digital side of it, but I was just curious in as as we're in this evolving world of new of the of, as the media continues to evolve into this new world, where do you see these new sites, hyper local sites, in a lot of ways, interacting with local local commercial television and local commercial radio? And I should disclose, I do contribute. I'm a contributor at GBH. I blog for Boston.com, and I'm also at WRKO too. Just there's no conflicts here, but I'm just curious where you see these. Where you see these, <laughs> I'm just trying to see where you see these sites interacting with uh, local commercial television and radio. Because I remember earlier we were talking about how it's, I think it was Callie said, these are just, uh, it's just a collection of murders and animal abuse stories or something like that on well, the that's local. That's what some people think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But just how do you see those developing to anybody on the panel? 
Um, I think it provides an opportunity that uh, is largely untapped uh, because uh, for many television stations, they have yet to really realize the potential of any part of cyberspace. So uh, in as much as they could look around and recognize that that's where they have to go to drive, um, I think, interest to their show, uh, their broadcast show is the way to go. And I think there are all kinds of forces working in that direction. First of all, uh, you know, as we've discussed this whole time, people are expecting it to be there. They're expecting that that's the information that they will get from a local news show. They want something other than the first 15 minutes is what President Obama did, unless he was in Mattapan visiting the school. Do you know they want something about it? So, and they're not finding that all the time in those newscasts, so they're looking around. So it behooves those stations to make some kind of alliances, if for no other reason, is just to get content. You know, at WGBH, we have just formed a partnership with a website called Exonomy uh, because we're really interested in innovation. And my news director is really interested in innovation. It's a big thing in Massachusetts. And he said, we're really not covering it well. I mean, there's a bit here, there's a bit here, there's a bit there. Why don't we you know, take that on as, as something that we can do here? And we cannot reinvent the wheel. We're not a, uh, we don't have you know, a staff of 50 to do enterprise reporting in that way. And here's some people who are sitting right here doing this. Why don't we partner with them? So I mean, that's, that we're a public media station. But I think as commercial stations look around, they figure out that they, they have to do that kind of outreach as well. I mean, it's expected, I think, at this point. <laughs> there was an interesting experiment in the Washington area a couple of years ago um, where a TV station set up this huge network of, with local blogs and local news sites, and it failed miserably. Um, just as they were getting launched, the, the TV station decided, no, they didn't really want to be in hyper-local, so they, they fired the editor, they cut all the funding, and the thing collapsed. And I don't know if on the commercial side if that's, you know, uh, people are scared about that. Um, but radio and TV stations are media organizations like everybody else. And, and you know, they're uh, Channel 5, so all, all the TV stations now solicit photographs, and they put up these uh, slideshows. Not the most ambitious of projects. It's pretty easy to do. But you know, they're slowly getting into it. It's, it's kind of interesting that um, they've been behind like newspapers in, in coming Usually to grips behind. with the technology. Uh, let's just say, let's put it on the table. Adam's being nice. Most uh, local TV stations' websites are crap. I mean, they're really bad. And what, uh, what angers me is that you know, broadcasters such as myself, you had a lock on the big part of it, which is the video. You know, if nothing else, we know how to do video and audio. We're not afraid of this. While, you know, print reporters were out here talking about, how do you do a story where you have to do audio and video at the same time and write? Hello, TV. That's how you do it. So, I mean, I just can't believe that television stations allowed themselves to be beat up this way when this was an obvious opportunity, a, a clear uh, ability to show off the, the, the central part of the technology that is of great interest to people, and they've blown it pretty much. I think. And it, <laughs> by, by blowing it, it's, it's given us an opportunity uh, over the last two or three years. That's true. Uh, That's true. Over the last two or three years, yeah. we've ramped up our video operations significantly. Uh, we've, uh, Boston.com has won uh, some local Emmys. Uh, we did a terrific package on um, Senator Kennedy's life and death. Um, and it's now regularly featured on, on Boston.com. 
And, uh, you know, what we had seen um, uh, for years is uh, the local TV stations, uh, and they still do it, uh, reading what was in the Globe that morning. Mm -hmm. and, and we see an opportunity to, to get out front and, and provide that coverage uh, in a digital uh, video way. I mean, the other thing that is happening, as you say, is because everybody has these some access to some of these tools, no matter if you're a radio person or a TV uh, station or a cable station or a, or a news or newspaper, um, you can get into these different spaces. So there, you know, like we, I said at the beginning, the radio stations have a web presence, a text presence, and uh, and so do the um, some of the TV stations and. Uh, you know they're not great, but they're actually their their audience isn't isn't actually terrible. Um, and I would say that uh, WBUR, which is our competitor, uh, they set up their websites to be an original enterprise. You know, some supplement of their programming, but mostly enterprise. That's not how GBH was set up initially. So we're just moving now slowly over to do some enterprise reporting. So that's a that's a little bit of a difference. You'll see some of that happening again. That's the the public media space. I would also say I sit on the jury for the DuPont Columbia Awards, the, which it's the Pulitzer for broadcast journalists. And we three years ago opened up the made a different category for. Uh, really what we call broadcasting on the web, exclusively to the web. The first year we got kind of eh, eh, even though lots of people were doing it. Uh, last year a little better. This year I think we're in a race. We got some really, really good stuff that I've seen thus far, and I haven't had the big meeting yet to see what other people have seen. So this, the level of sophistication, what's available, and most importantly, the understanding that multimedia does not mean just throwing every tool at the story, but, but really understanding what's best in video, what piece of it can be told in video, what's best in audio, and what's best in print. So that at each, any one of these points, if I go to it, I'm getting the story. And it may lead me to want to read this or hear this. And if you're not doing that, then that's not multimedia. That's just you know throwing the, the media spaghetti at the wall. Okay, uh, I, I want to say I did not recognize Garrett Quinn of Boston.com, uh, WRKO, and WGBH because the light is in my eyes. Uh, but uh, thank you for coming. And over here, the light is not in my eyes, so I can see that uh, we're about to hear from Jason Pramis of Open Media Boston. Thanks, Dan. Um, so. Um, yeah, so I run an, uh, an online community news weekly and uh, been doing it for three and a half years, which is, we're getting on being a long distance runner at that point. Um, put out hundreds of stories about Boston and stuff. And I go to all these conferences and I run some conferences, um, you know, trying to deal with issues of, of, of what, what, what's the, how do the fortunes ogre, you know, for, for, uh, for, for these new entrants into, into, the, into the news markets. And we're a nonprofit, right? And uh, uh, we're in the mix in, in networks like the Block by Block Network, which Knight, of course, uh, has, has been uh, helping along of publications like ourselves, which includes nonprofits and for-profits. And I was just over across town at the uh, pre-conference that uh, JLab at American Universities uh, was running today on uh, news entrepreneuring, they called it, uh, where all the players that Dan and others have mentioned uh, nationally were there. So New Haven Independence there, Texas Tribune's there, Right, uh, Barista Net was there. Debbie spoke. You know, everyone's there. No the one's making money. Online news association. Yeah, an online news association conference. conference is the pre-conference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you know, all these folks are are in town actually, 
And of course, we were talking about money, right? What do we always talk about? We talk about how are we making money. And no one's making money except the early entrants, um, you know, like uh, not even New Haven Independent. I mean, they're, they're just about a quarter million. I mean, they're doing well by our standards. But uh, even the folks that run regional ad networks and stuff aren't making much more than that annually. We make under 50000 a year right now. I mean, we're just trying to really become like a, a real boy in Pinocchio terms. I, I pay myself, but that's about it, right? And uh, pay stringers sometimes when I can. Um, the, the point is just that, uh, uh, yeah, the, only the early entrants that had a couple $3 million dumped on them by their, by their regional foundations so like the, or, or had big angel investors like the Texas Tribune where they just got, you know, here's two million bucks two years ago. You go do your thing. Well, okay, they're doing pretty good, right? St. Louis uh, Beacon uh, has a budget of about five million, you know. So, I mean, they're, they're up and running. They're, they're becoming majors. Um, the rest of us, the, the, the ecology of foundations, the, the advertising certainly is, you know, uh, nothing is working to sustain us. Um, so I, I'm asking the panel, therefore, what about expanding public media, public funding? I mean, you know, um, Callie, you, you actually work in public media. I mean, uh, we've seen models in other countries like uh, the National Film Board in support of documentary filmmaking. Why wouldn't it be possible to have uh, uh, independent public funding, you know, run by community committees, you know, with various luminaries on them or whatever in their field, uh, to disperse money to community publications in the public interest? You know, so that we, we can be sure that we, that we uh, in the furtherance of democracy, that we have grassroots journalism going on, or journalism in general terms, uh, everywhere it needs to be, including communities like Roxbury, Mattapan, Dorchester, where there's not, you know, there's not advertising dollars, there's not re a reason for Pat, Patch or others to just rush in, um, you know, where the, where the Globe and others, largely because of cuts to their news budget, have decamped. That's why publications like mine exist, actually. I mean, because there's a news vacuum, so we're trying to fill it. What, why couldn't we talk about expanding public media? Yeah, no question that public media is, uh, gets less funding in the United States than in almost any other Western democracy. So what about it? Is this something that could happen? Well, no, what I was about to say that this reminds me of my, my mother telling us always the difference between can and may. Uh, yeah, you have the ability to, you can, but may you? <laughs> I mean, that's the whole, uh, that's the, that is what it comes down to. Look at uh, the BBC always in my life as a, as a uh, broadcast journalist was held up as this is it, this is the model. And people are getting ugly about the BBC. They've gotten ugly. They're laying off folks in ways they never had to. And they have proof positive of what you can get when you invest in it when everybody invests in it, to make certain that you are getting stories that everybody wants to hear and then stories that we just eat your peas kind of stuff that we need to know about. They had it. There was the proof. And yet that was not enough uh, to be supported. Um, you know, everywhere you look in public media, people are getting laid off. It's very uh, serious and scary for some of us in it. And public media is in the, at a place right now where they're trying to figure out how to reinvent, really how to bring back to um, the numbers that were there at some point, or maybe people thought the numbers were there, in which we demonstrated that we were doing the kind of work that just cannot get done in a commercial setting, or if it cannot, uh, is not being done in a commercial setting. I think there's more evidence of that than ever now. But I don't know that people have a value, have placed a value on it. And the same kind of conversation I had with my book club members asking, who's watching or who's reading local news, and I get this mixed bag 
for a lot of people, and these, it's in a book club, so we're, we're talking readers, people who want to have information, um, are just not that impressed that local news brings them something. So you first have to somehow get people of a mindset, and I don't know how you demonstrate it, that it does bring you something, that it is important, that we must know, and it has to be supported. And then after that, maybe there's some expansion uh, to public media in the way that we have not seen uh, in this country. But Dan makes an excellent point. And trust me, there are, for all of the angry letters that Adam gets on Universal Hub about the fat cat sitting over at WGBH rolling around in dough, I'd like to see them. <laughs> I'd like some of that dough we're rolling around in, supposedly, because it's just not happening. You know, uh, be, before, before we hear from more panelists on this, because I think it's a really important issue, I mean, we can't ignore the political context in which we exist. Right. I, mean, I mean, this room might be full of people who'd like to see more funding for public media, uh, but we live in a world in which uh, if national public radio uh, survives year to year from having all of its public funding eliminated, we see that as a victory. So, uh, I mean, what about it? Adam and Dave, any thoughts as to whether this is anywhere close to being on the horizon? No. It, it's not going to happen, not when you have a Tea Party that's essentially controlling the Congress. Um, and then the question is, if the Tea Party is control, essentially controlling Congress, do you really want those people giving out money for, for can you trust them with public broadcasting funds? Uh, or, or not broadcasting, in this case, public media. Um, I, I think you're really going to have to look, it's going to have to be a grassroots local effort or statewide effort. Don't look to Washington for anything. I, I agree. I mean, the political landscape isn't there. Um, you know, what's been kind of remarkable uh, in the last several years is the way foundations have stepped into this void uh, night uh, with a lot of, uh, you know, seed money to encourage innovation in the hyper-local space. Um, other organizations, uh, you know, uh, local foundations, as Dan mentioned, the St. Louis Beacon model is fascinating. Um, you know, and the trick then, I think, you know, everybody's got a different business model, but the trick then is to sort of get some some foundation money and then figure out a way to sustain beyond that, to build community around your brand so that you can either fundraise from individuals or, be, you know, figure out a way to, to sell ads. Or, you know, the other uh, big thing is partnerships with other organizations. Um, we have uh, a partnerships with several universities uh, in town where the students are writing as part of their, their academic curriculum and, uh, you know, we're posting their stories on our sites. Um, you know, others have much bigger, um, you know, partnerships uh, with the, like, uh, local uh, public radio or public TV station in some markets, so. Okay, and we have a very patient questioner over here. Hi. Um, first. I'd like to try to answer a question the panel has posed a couple of times and ask one of my own. Um, I'm a citizen journalist in Cambridge, and to me the answer to why Patch isn't here is that it's um, something of a wise decision. Um, Cambridge has an extremely low level of civic engagement, um, low voting rates, um, low interest in local politics, um, and it's also become somewhat a city of transients and you know, people who come here for a few years to um, 
you know, go to college, then go off, or people who, you know, Harvard people are focused on Harvard, MIT people are focused on MIT, you know, the Google engineers and um, the Genzyme engineers care about what they care about, and there really hasn't been, you know, a core, you know, politics or issue in Cambridge that people cared about since rent control went away. Um, so, I mean, the Cambridge you think you know, um, you know, isn't, you know, the one that's here, and I actually wrote a couple of stories about that last week, and you know, that you look at what the median income in Cambridge is and it's gone up like that while, you know, U.S. has gone down. Um, but let me, let me move on to my question, which is really um, about social media, um, which has come up a couple of times. Um, you know, Adam uses it in one way, sort of, you know, Twitter as a, um, call it a surveillance device to figure out what's going on <laughs> in the world. I, I, if I could have come up with a better word, I would have. Um, um, and also as a megaphone to find out, um, you know, what, what's going on out there. Um, Facebook is used for sort of the, um, call it town crier of, you know, stuff that's going on. But, I mean, there's another thing that's happening which I'd like folks to comment on. Um, you've, you've got the wrong example page up there for me, but if you went, you know, back to, you know, Adam's side, he has a fake, Facebook-like tweet this story, um, and some other icons I couldn't quite figure out, Reddit, something else. Um, um, and, and, you know, the Globe is doing that too. Um, you know, I mean, using, call it third-party social graphs as a way of, you know, broadcasting stories. I mean, today Facebook made a whole lot of announcements, one of which is that they've reinvented the newspaper. Right. Um, and th those were their words, um, which seems, you know, there's a Washington Post app on Facebook so that you can see what, um, you know, what stories in the Washington Post your friends are reading, um, you know, things like that. Um, my question is, um, I mean, as we've talked about you know, the local sites, we haven't really talked about, you know, the elephant in the room, you know, which are these social, you know, social sites, which are, you know, um, you know which we've outsourced um, the broadcast of interest to. Um, is that a good thing? Um, is it in inevitable? And, I mean, where, where does that trend lead? I mean, one other way of putting it is that is that community journalism has typically been the public square, and we are turning over a lot of the public square to large private corporations. So that's that's I think that's an extension of, of one of the things that you're getting at. Any thoughts? That's exactly. Um, whenever I rely on third party for anything, I, I do get a little concerned. To be honest, what I'm using those little icons for is more as a traffic builder. You know, so if somebody. Um, like one of my stories got picked up, I read it, the, and not just the local one, but the national one, and my traffic, it was great, it went through the roof. Um, and since my advertising model is all cost per thousand, it was wonderful. Um, but I, I have, uh, there's a site in the, in the Catskill Mountains called Watershed Post, which I've done some work for. It's, it's a hyper-local site. One of the things they did was they, they, they're using a platform called Drupal, which is a very nice community platform. They ripped out the commenting part because nobody was commenting except spammers. They, they, uh, you can embed Facebook comments now. 
that's what they're doing. And the amount of comments they get now on their stories, it is incredible because now they're exposed to this huge audience on this huge platform. Um, but you, you do have to worry about, are you giving up some level of control? Um, you know, they don't, they don't have the user registration data anymore. Not that they were using it to sell ads or anything, but it's like they've lost that relationship with their, their, their users. So yes, you do have to be careful. Um, at, at a previous job, we had a problem where Google took out every single page of our site because they thought we were trying to do something. You know, it, fortunately, it was a large enough company that, that we were able to get that fixed fairly quickly. But yeah, you, it's not like you know, 20 years ago where the newspaper was it, or the media organization was it, and you owned everything about your customers or your read. Listen to me, I'm talking like a business person. Mm. But you know, mm. it's, it, you do have a relationship with the people that you, you um, communicate with. And what happens if Facebook decides that you violated one of their policies and they don't let you do that? You know, six months or a year's worth of comments from, by hundreds of people, they disappear. Um, I'm just saying that I'm worried, but yeah, you know, it, it is an issue. I'm kind of fascinated by all of the, uh, not just the latest Facebook thing, but the, I was just reading about the Wall Street Journal partnering with Facebook to funnel their content. Uh, and I thought that was interesting. They apparently did that completely independently of anything Facebook was planning, which is, huh. you know, one of those, you know, sort of in, in, interesting things. But yeah, I mean, it's another case where, um, you know, you, f you feel like they're kind of, you know, selling their soul in a certain way, um, you know, to, to get the Facebook readers because you, that's you understand where you're getting... talking about a media organization owned oh, yeah, by Rupert right. Murdoch. Yes. <laughs> if, yeah, I... if they were to have a soul, they would have sold it. <laughs> I mean, the thing about it is that, you know, and I'm not a, a, a big Facebooker, I'll just tell you that right now. I have one for the show, and, um, but I am really suspicious of it uh, because I, they keep for doing this. They, every two seconds they're changing something, and I don't like that. So um, people are always sending me something. I'm like, whatever. I'm just, that is just not where I want to be. But Twitter I have a different relationship with, which is interesting. So I don't, I don't feel that. But I think to myself, one of the things that bothers me a little bit about news sharing on Facebook is it really very much depends on who, what your community is or who your community is. I mean, I had a conversation with the guy who was uh, head of Gather, uh, which was a site positive to be for folks over uh, 50. And I said to him, okay, so what if your group is stupid? So all you're getting is stupid news. And he said, that's a problem. Well, you see, <laughs> you know, I would like to have just a, a broader kind of uh, thing going on, and that just bothers me. So I've, I mean, I know that's the way of the future. I think you've just given an example of something that really is scary to me, where they're the Facebook comments, aside from the pot potential control or loss of them, it's just like how, People's communities, are in, it seems to me, are as big as Facebook is, can be too narrow. So that, that bothers me. And I'm all about different voices. And, and, and you know, for most of my life, and I'm sure it's going to continue, most of, a lot of the voices that I need to hear from are not going to be in that little circle. So already, that would be limiting to me. I think the, the thing that a lot of people are trying to figure out is, is where do the comments go uh, in newspaper site world? Um, uh, with most, with many newspaper uh, sites, are you know legacy news organization sites. Uh, the comments are um, 
can be anonymous or with uh, you know fake names or, or first names or whatnot. Uh, some news organizations uh, have have gravitated to where the comments take place on Facebook, um, and uh, I think as a no matter of course on Facebook, you you have to give your name or at least say that that's your real name, um, which changes the comments sometimes, but it also expo exposes the uh, product or the story to a huge audience, uh, 600 million users, which, you know, whether you like it or not, is, as Adam says, in terms of traffic drivers, is not something to be ignored. Um, so you think it's a good thing? We're experimenting with it. Um, we, on the Your Town sites, we went with where I think the gentleman was going to, uh, our, we have virtual sites, so there is a Boston.com, uh, Cambridge, uh, Facebook page, but when you click on it, uh, you're sent to, uh, to our site. Um, the, uh, but in Somerville, we've switched over to where it's actually it rests on the, on, the, on the Facebook server and, um, and have been experimenting on that. And, you know, it's, it's six of one at this point. I mean, in my case, we're talking about a fairly small set of people and a fairly, fairly narrow um, readership. Um, I, I think in the hyper-local space where we're trying to beam into individual communities, at least the way we've set our model up, you know, it might not, it might not matter one way or the other. And yeah. is, is, I want to know if the comments are different. I'm curious about that. Are, they, are you getting better comments? Um, I, I haven't looked at the comments, to tell you the truth. Um, we're not getting that many comments on, in either case, um, uh, we, have, we had a fair number of likes, the, the, me, the metric that we're using <coughs> to sort of get people to follow us in the Facebook space is likes. And you know we've driven those up into five or six hundreds per town in some cases. The comments then rest on our site. And you know, if we write something that's sort of provocative, like you know, uh, the bicycling thing being the best example, um, you know, we get a lot of comments. I, I haven't read every one of those comments. They're okay. usually, you know, I, I mean, you look kind of Boston.com comments, and you know. And are you comfortable with Facebook owning your content, and no. also owning, <laughs> you know, own? Probably I mean, it, more it, about it's your an metrics odd, it's than an odd situation. Do? I mean, we're using them as a distribution device, you know, and, and I'm not making the decisions here at the strategic level. I mean, but personally, uh, it's it's an odd situation. I mean, I think we have to play in this space because there's so many users and there's just ways to reach people that way. Like Adam, I've become much more fascinated with with uh, Twitter, uh, you know, over the last three or four months because it's so instantaneous. But I've begun to wonder whether <laughs> You know, essentially what we're doing, the conversation is, is great and your model is great, but in many cases we're tweeting out headlines and to some people that's enough. So they're not even going down to our story and clicking to our content, you know. Mm -hmm. So we're using that distribution device in hopes of getting them back to our site, but they might not be clicking on our story. And so the business model that we have in which we want them to come back to our story is not, is not being fulfilled. You know, let, let me offer an example that I think might speak more directly to the concern that you're raising. Um, several years ago, uh, the Beverly Citizen, which is a gatehouse paper, so it is in and of itself part of a large corporation, um, covered a Fourth of July parade uh, that turned out to have an extremely crude and offensive float 
uh, it, it was this, and uh, and it, it was very controversial because they made a video and put it on their website, and uh, and and they were deluged with complaints. But this was a public parade; hundreds of people saw it. Um, what happened was this: like many news organizations, especially smaller ones. Gatehouse, uh, the Gatehouse papers used YouTube as their video publication platform. Um, YouTube removed the video. YouTube, owned by Google, I should note, simply removed the video. As best as anybody at Gatehouse could tell, uh, YouTube's policy is that if they get one complaint about a video, they'll mm. take it down. Oh. Now, if they had taken a picture of this offensive float, and run it in their print edition, I don't know whether Goss International was going to come out to the paper and say, you know what, we're going to load up our presses and truck them away because we don't, we don't like what use you were putting to uh, our presses. So yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that we have become extremely reliant on uh, various third-party platforms and, uh, and I think that this could come uh, bite us in some very unexpected ways, as it did with Gatehouse. They had to run around and find another platform. I think they finally got it up on Vimeo or something. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I am getting the <laughs> signal. Uh, you, have been, you have been a wonderful audience. Uh, you have been a fantastic panel. Can we hear it for our panelists, please? <laughs>